Please join me in John chapter 14. We're re-entering what we know of as the upper room discourse. These are the words of Jesus, the night he was betrayed and arrested. This is the night before he's going to be killed on a cross, allowing himself to be crucified for us, for our sins, and for the sins of the entire world. And so we've been seeing these amazing things that Jesus has been teaching his disciples that very night. Today we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. So it was last weekend... I was driving to Lynchburg, and uh, but while I was still in the Richmond area, <clears throat> I turned on 11.40 a.m., and there's a show on in the morning, just happened to be on, in the garage. And so there are these two mechanics talking about cars, and they happen to be talking about oil changes and how regularly you should have your oil change with a car that has synthetic oil versus traditional oil. Then they got around to a number I haven't been able to shake. Basically, if you let your engine not have enough oil, you might have to replace the engine. And now with inflation, that cost would be $6,000. I don't know if that includes installation of the engine or not. I don't want to find out. So I'm going to change that oil. So wouldn't you agree with me that though the car has many important parts, the engine by far the most important part. If you don't have a functioning engine in your car, I don't know what you call that thing in your driveway. It's just going to be another living room. It's going to sit, sit in the car that doesn't move. It's critically important. Well, today you're going to learn that there is a power source for your life. For some of you, this is going to be a reminder. You think, oh yeah, I know who the Holy Spirit is to me. He is the very power of my life. Some of you though are going to see this for the first time and I'm thrilled for you that you'll be able to discover right along with what Jesus is teaching here that, that you don't have to be stuck in your life. You don't have to be trapped there that God will give you power and joy in your life. You're going to see that there's a new engine, a new power source for your life. So it's a great truth. We're going to see that. We're going to have two teachings this morning, essential truths about the spirit and essential truths about obedience. But let's just get a running start into this. If you've been with us, just a reminder, they're in the upper room and Jesus has told them, I'm going to be leaving you. Peter doesn't like that. And so Peter says, I'm pretty sure I can go with you wherever you're going. In fact, I'm willing to lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, Peter, before the next morning, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then in that upper room, we have Thomas saying, listen, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me. Then you have Philip saying there, he says, look, just show us the father. That'll be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And then we have here Jesus saying, disciples, you're going to do greater things than you've even seen me do. And I have to think if they could even compute that at all, they're thinking, how, how would that be possible? We've seen some amazing things. How could we see greater things? And then Jesus moves into this teaching now on the Holy Spirit. That's going to make sense of all that. So let's go in together. John 14, picking up today in verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we're going to take on that in a moment, but let's now move into the spirit. The, sixth, the, the second thing Jesus says here, verse 16, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. 
in that day you will know that I'm in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. And we're going to come back to this next section. For a moment, we're going to skip it. We're going to go down to verse 26 to continue the Lord's thoughts on the Spirit. Verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Let's pause there and let's consider some essential truths about the spirit. So who is this spirit? Well, first of all, we're told Jesus is promising them that the spirit is coming. We see that in verses 16 and verse 26. But who is this spirit? Well, Jesus describes him as here another helper. And that word in the original language for helper is a word that sometimes can be translated advocate or one who comforts, counsels, one who consoles, even someone who could defend you in court. So this is how the Holy Spirit is described here. He's another helper. Now, this is interesting also because that same word, parakletos, that we translate here, helper, is the same word that John uses to describe Jesus in 1 John 2, 1, when he calls him the advocate. Listen to this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. That's the same word. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Jesus is saying this, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send you another helper, but he's another of the same kind as me. So he is a helper as I've been a helper to you. He's an advocate for you. Like I've been an advocate for you, another of the same kind. So he's called another helper, but then we see this, he's called the spirit of truth. Verse 16 again, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. This is another way in which the Holy Spirit is a, another helper of the same kind. Because Jesus has just told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's just said, I'm the truth. Now he says, and when I go, I'm sending you the spirit of truth. This is Paul's there. It is critical that you and I know that's who the spirit is. He is the spirit of truth. A lot of crazy things are said and done in the name of the Holy Spirit. You probably heard people say something bizarre. You think, where'd you get that? Well, the spirit told me that you could do this this afternoon. I don't know if I recommend it. I've done it before, but, um, I don't remember what I put into the search bar on YouTube, but probably something like crazy, something at church, crazy things at church or bizarre things at church, whatever. I don't know what I, I it's risky to do that, but I've done it before, whatever I've searched. And you can see some people running around the church in the worship service, jumping over pews. And then even one, one of them, the guys were just kind of in a frenzy running around this little church somewhere out in the country. Then the guy ran up and just jumped into the baptistry. Wasn't a planned baptismal service. He did. Now, it would be tough to do here. Please don't try it. And I'm pretty sure there's no water in there. So it'd be dangerous. But, but can you imagine? Now, when you, when you would ask those people, why did you do that? What's the answer? Spirit took a hold on me. 
I couldn't help it. Spirit took over, and I just took off running, jumping pews, jumped in the baptistry. All, all chaos broke loose there. Listen, I don't, I don't know what that is. Um, that, that's probably a cultural expression in some parts of the United States where they feel like you just got to get up and move, and you just feel so good. I think it's a lot of emotion, but, uh, but that's not characteristic of the Holy Spirit we read about in the Bible that we are going to go do that. Also, people will make some strange statements sometimes. Uh, they'll say, I know what the Bible says, the written, I know what the Bible says, but the Spirit of God has told me. And they'll come up with something contrary to the scriptures. We're just making the point, the Holy Spirit wouldn't do that. This is the Spirit of truth. You do know it's the same Spirit who inspired the Bible. So that's, that's how the writers got scripture. That's how you have a Bible. The Holy Spirit inspired it. He would never tell you to do something contrary to what he's already said in the scriptures. So it's clear for us to understand, important for us to be clear, he is the spirit of truth. I've even counseled people trying to get them out of some sinful behavior that they're committed to. And on some occasions, you'll hear somebody do this. I, I know, I know what the Bible says, but I've prayed about it. And, then, and the next thing is, you know, and I, and I, they're trying to make the point that I prayed about it and God's letting me know that I, it's okay for me to do opposite of what the Bible says. So I, I don't know who you're praying to because the Holy Spirit would not respond to your request telling you something other than what he has clearly revealed in the scripture. He is the spirit of truth. So how do you know? How do you know what's emotion? How do you know what's some other spirit? There are other spirits, by the way, evil spirits. How do you, how do you know? Listen, the, the spirit of God, the spirit of truth would never lead you to do something contrary to the scripture. You, if you have any impulse and you don't see any precedent for that in the scripture, and, it's, and, it, and if it's against the scripture, that, that's not the spirit of God. So again, who is exactly is the spirit? This one called another helper. This one called the spirit of truth. Well, this is God, the spirit. This is the third person of the Trinity. And we see here in this text, this interplay between the father, son, and the spirit. It's quite interesting. Look at verse 16 again. And I, it's Jesus talking, God, the son, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. We see the same thing in verse 26. See the interplay between the father, son, and the spirit, but the helper, the Holy spirit, whom the father will send in my name. So the spirit, he shares the same divine essence as the father and the son. Same attributes as, as we've already seen. The spirit is the spirit of truth. Jesus said, I am truth. The Holy Spirit is called the, the advocate or the helper. Jesus, same attributes. He's also the helper. He is the advocate here. So understand this. When we talk about the spirit, he is God. He's not a force. He's a person. When we speak about the Holy Spirit, we would never say it in reference to the spirit. That's not how the scripture reveals him. The Holy Spirit is always called he in fact, you see it in the text here in verse 17. The Holy Spirit is he's a person and he has always existed eternally with the father and the son. So on the very first page of your Bible, the very first verses you read of the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. <clears throat> the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Listen. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So as long as there's been the father and the son, there has been the Holy Spirit. So here we see in our text, each person of the Trinity is distinct and yet sharing the same essence, the same purpose. One God eternally existing in three persons <clears throat> and agreed, agreed, mind blown. Like how, how can he be that way? We're just one person 
one body, we just, that's how we do. And God is one God eternally existing in three persons. What we also reject is the idea of modalism. Modalism is an ancient heresy that says, no, God is one, but what he does do, he shows up sometimes as father. Sometimes he changes form and he's the spirit. And then other times he changes form and he's the son. He just, he does different, he's in different modes at different times, but that's not at all what the scripture teaches. That's not how God reveals himself to us. No, he eternally exists as three persons and we see them interacting within the Godhead like this. So let's think about some other famous passages where we see the Trinity affirmed. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, in the Great Commission, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Or how about 2 Corinthians 13, 14, also speaking of the three persons of the Trinity. Listen to this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so we see the three persons of the Trinity co-equal. Once again, we talk about the Spirit. He's not a force. He's a person. Whereas Paul says here, you can have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. You can't fellowship with a mere force. You fellowship with a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. And we also see how he's co-equal with the Father in places like Acts 5. Famously, when Ananias and Sapphira, when they were uh, sold property and they were bringing it to church as an offering, they made the claim that we're bringing in the full price. They could have given whatever percentage they wanted to, but they made the claim. We sold it and we're given the whole thing. And they lied. And the scripture says, Ananias, Peter said to him, Ananias, why has, the, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Then he goes on to say, you've not lied to man but to God, it's making the point, who is this? Who is the spirit? The spirit of God. He's God, the spirit. So that's who he is. But what will he do? Jesus is going to come to you. I'm going to send this helper to you, the spirit of truth. What's he going to do? Well, namely, he is going to be with them. Again, verses 16 and 17. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus said, he's already been dwelling with you, but he's soon, he's going to be inside of you. And I love verse 18. What a beautiful statement. I will not leave you as orphans. Now know this, Jesus is not promising some new spirit. This is the same Holy Spirit, active from creation in Genesis, all through the old covenant, the Holy Spirit would come upon people. This is the same spirit who has been active in the ministry of Jesus. That's why Jesus says, you, you know him. You've been interacting with him already. But what's going to be new is the same spirit who has eternally existed, God the Spirit, he is soon going to be in you as believers. He's going to permanently indwell you. So we ask the question, when did that happen to the disciples? When did Jesus fulfill that promise? And it was at Pentecost. After the death of Jesus, the resurrection, there after the ascension of Jesus back to heaven, the Holy Spirit given as promised, and he came powerfully on and in the disciples there at Pentecost. You say, well, when did that happen to me? Well, this happens now since Pentecost. This now happens when any time a person puts their faith in Jesus. That's when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. It's the Holy Spirit who opens your eyes to the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit who draws you to the Son. 
but also he then takes up residence in you from the moment you believe in Jesus. And you become, catch this, you become from the moment you believe a temple of the Holy Spirit. Here's what the scripture says. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Do you know that truth? That God, the Spirit, he lives in you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Don't, don't let that go. Yeah, I've known that for a long time. That is life-changing truth. That again, some of you are maybe learning for the first time as a young Christian. Some of you have been believers a long time. I hope you'll just appreciate anew, like, that is amazing. That is amazing that God would come and be with me and he would actually be in me. That, that changes how you live your life. Now, generations before us, they really felt it was a big deal what you did and did not do in the church building. So maybe you were told as a kid, hey, don't, don't, run, in, don't run in God's house, you know. Don't do that. We can never do that in church. Maybe you met people with a weird morality, whether things I would never do at church. So for instance, lying. I might lie to you at the used car lot, but I would not lie to you in a church. I might lie to you in the neighborhood, but I would not lie to you in church. That is weird, unbiblical thinking. That, that's, a, that's a person with no morality. But when you realize, no, the, the, the truth of scripture is this place is not the temple of the Holy Spirit. You, believer, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That changes how you live everywhere you go. Like, no, lying is not going to be acceptable anywhere. And immorality is not going to be acceptable anywhere. I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. Holy, holy, holy God lives inside of me, and he's with me to empower a very different life than the one I used to live. That's an amazing truth. So he came to be with you, even in you. But what's he going to do there? He's not there just to be present and passive. Like, I'm just going to ride along in you and just see what you do with your life. That's not the role of the Holy Spirit. He's active in your life. And Jesus mentions some of the things he's going to do. Look with me at verses 26 and 27 again. But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus tells these disciples, I'm going, but I'm sending you another helper like me. Same attributes coming to you. You're not going to be an orphan and I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you all things and I'm going to remind you of all things. So have you ever wondered how, how in the world did these men remember the things that Jesus taught? So we have the gospels and here we have John writing the gospel. He, he was in the upper room. He's recording things. How, how would he get all this sermon recorded? This is the Holy Spirit. Just as promised would teach him and remind him of everything that Jesus taught. It's a supernatural how these things are preserved for us in the scripture. So he's in them, teaching them, reminding them of things, giving them peace. That command again, don't let your heart be troubled. He's giving them peace and power. The Holy Spirit is in you to give you power. Again, starting at Pentecost in the believers, but in all of us as well. So do you know that you are unable by yourself to live the Christian life. You could not possibly do the things God's called you to do apart from the Holy Spirit. So what is our job then? He has come and he's taken up residence in us. Our job is to fully yield to the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit like we're told to do in the book of Ephesians. Be filled with the Spirit. How do I do that? That means you're yielded to God fully. That means you've emptied yourself of your sin, any conscious sin in your life. Like, you know, I'm done with all that. 
I want to be emptied of all that so that, Lord, you can live your life through me. I want to be fully yielded. So this partial obedience won't do. A partial commitment won't do. You, you don't be like, I want to be mostly committed to Jesus. Those areas where you're not committed, that's preventing you from being spirit-filled. You're resisting him in your disobedience. But our, our role is to say, no, I, I yield all control to you, that you would live your life through me as you've determined. I need your help, so I yield to you. I need your comfort, your correction. I need you to keep inspiring obedience and empowering me. Sinclair Ferguson said this, if he indwells us, no deeper intimacy of fellowship with Jesus is possible and no deeper fellowship with others is possible either. We share in one spirit, not only with Christ, but with one another. This is the promise Jesus is giving to his disciples. They are losing their teacher only to gain him in a new way. Jesus also makes clear here that this is only for his people. Unbelievers don't have the spirit. So verse 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So do you realize today what a treasure you have in the Holy Spirit living in you? Here's a question. Are you seeing the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Are you living your life according to his power? Or are you living like that power is not available to you? Maybe I could say it this way. Are you living your life, your Christian life, like it's a Flintstones car? You remember Flintstones cartoon? And uh, in, in remakes of movies, and when Fred and Barney would get into the car, funny moment, but it's fiction, by the way. But when they get in the car, they drop their feet down and they start pedaling that car. And it was just great entertainment. Goofy, still remember it to this day. It would be sad if a believer lived their Christian life like that. Like here I am and I, it's all on me. There's no other engine. I'm just going to have to do this one feet. Or maybe a better illustration is to ask this. Are you rowing a sailboat? Sailboat and rowboat are very different. And so here we are as believers, more like a sailboat. We have a sail. We're to hoist that sail up into the wind. And that wind is a power beyond ourselves that can move us along to do things we couldn't do. Our own. Nothing our little arms could do what that wind can do. And that's, that's how the believers to live his life. Look, I, I know I have a, a, an opportunity and a responsibility to put myself into the wind so that, Lord, you could do your work in my life. There's power available to us beyond anything we could come up with on our own. So we've just been talking about some essential truths about the Spirit. Now, real quickly, some essential truth about obedience. Some essential truth about obedience. Let's go back to verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But now we'll go back to those verses that we jumped over a moment ago. Let's go back to verse 21. Same theme of obedience here. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. So see with me here, essential truth about obedience and notice it's a command that you and I would obey. And Jesus said, our obedience is linked to our love for him. So isn't it true that your love for God will show up in your obedience to him? 
And isn't the opposite also true? That our disobedience to Christ shows that we ultimately don't love him. We can say it this way. We're either expressing that we love our sin or we love the Savior. We see this in our response to the temptations that we all face. When we have these choices, what, what, what am I going to do here in this moment? Am I going to love the Lord and draw close to him against this temptation? Or am I going to move toward the temptation, moving away from my Savior? I don't really want you right now that I might have my sin. So let's think about some examples. So gossip. Now, sometimes gossip, we don't intend to do it. I, I found myself on occasions where I'm like, I'm like two or three sentences in when I realize, oh, wait a minute, this is gossip. And I have to kind of pull myself out of that. Like, you know, I'm sorry, that, that, that wasn't what I should have done. But other times you could on the front end know you're going to do it. Like, like, I feel like I feel like I want to tell this. I probably should. It's probably, it's gossip. I shouldn't. But then you go ahead and do it. That's disobeying. You know you shouldn't do it. You're, you're actually pulling away from the Lord where love would have held you close to him. Or what about profanity? I sympathize with folks who work somewhere other than where I work. I don't hear profanity every day uh, anymore. So I, I, left that, I left that in high school when Jesus saved me. But uh, some of you work in places or go to school in places where it's just the language of the day, the profanity. So, you know, so again, much mercy for you if you have that moment where you hit your toe and something comes out of you and you're like, oh, I'm sorry. And you're, you're, but, but some people cuss on purpose. Some people text profanity. Like you knew what you were doing. Or some people type it. Like, well, that's not, that's not accidental. You willfully thought, I shouldn't talk this way, but I'm going to talk this way. It's, it's a disobedience to the Lord. Same thing with, with lust. And how about things like this? You know, I should worship, but I'm not going to. I should read the Bible, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do something else. So love would have us draw close to God in obedience. A lack of love for him, like, I, I know I should, but I, there's something I'd rather do. I love something more than you. So Jesus ties these together. And he commands us to obey. So make sure when you think about obedience, don't have a distorted view of grace to where you think that now as a Christian, obedience is obsolete because Jesus never taught that way. It's true. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone, not by works. So your works can't save you. That is absolutely true. But the person who's been born again, who's come to know Jesus, the spirit of God living in them, they now have a new desire to be obedient. He's the Lord. We're disciples. Disciples follow the master. So don't have some weird version of Christianity where it doesn't matter what I do now. I don't have to obey. No, we're called to follow him fully in every area of life. And Jesus calls out here. He commands you to obey him in everything. So disobedience creates distance from him. Disobedience leads to dysfunction in every relationship where you have sin, but especially in your relationship with God. So we might ask the question then, what commands of Jesus does he have in mind? Well, let's look at what he most recently commanded here as we think of this upper room discourse. Here are some of the commands we've just recently seen as we walk through this. First of all, John 14, 1, Jesus commanded that we believe in him. You believe in God, believe also in me. So there's a command that you have to obey. If you want eternal life, you need to obey that command. Jesus, I believe in you. I know that you're the only one who can save me. You died on a cross for me. You were raised from the dead. You tell me that if I believe in you, I won't perish, but have everlasting life. I will obey that command, Jesus. I'm trusting only you, and I'm certainly not trusting myself. Here's another command we see in this talk in the upper room. Don't let your hearts be troubled. We saw that in verse 1, and we saw that in verse 27 of this chapter. Then we go back to verse, or chapter 13, rather, and we have the command to love one another. Remember that one? Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you 
that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Here's another one. We're told to serve one another. Remember back in chapter 13, when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he gave them a command. You need to treat each other the same way. You are to serve one another. But he said, well, what else? We could just say this, everything else. Everything that Jesus ever taught, anything you read in the New Testament he taught, we are to obey that. That's even in the Great Commission, where Jesus said, when you go out and share the gospel, you're gonna teach those new believers this, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So see with me the command to obedience, but see with me also the joy of obedience. I love these verses here. So obedience, yes, demonstrates your love for Jesus and your obedience to the Lord that the spirit helps you to do, enables you to experience the, the father's and the son's love for you. So when you're obeying the Lord in the power of the spirit, you're in a position to enjoy the love of God that you can't otherwise enjoy. So verse 21, you see that whoever has my commandments and keep them, keeps them. It is he who loves me. Now this, and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That's beautiful. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's beautiful language. So the one who is a believer who wants to be obedient, this person has a greater experience of the love of God in his life. That's what obedience will do. God's going to make himself known to the one who's walking with him more fully. Jesus said, I'm going to manifest myself to him, to the one who's walking in obedience. In other words, you can experience a deeper fellowship with the triune God if you love him and obey him and walk with him. That's why I love verse 23 here. We will make our home with him. That's beautiful, intimate language of what God wants for you for the one who walks with him like that. So, so that helps us see that disobedience then is very costly. Disobedience cuts you off from the joy and intimacy that God wants to have with you. So sin, if we think about it, is a terrible deal anytime we take it. Sin's always a lie. The lie is it's going to make you happy, but it's really a lose-lose proposition. It only brings pain, but it also steals the opportunity for joy that you would have if you were walking in obedience to him. So the question might come, well, wait a minute, doesn't God still love me in those moments of disobedience? Yes, of course he loves you in your disobedience. You're just not in a position to experience his love for you in those moments. He does love you, but you're not gonna experience it. You're not gonna feel it. You're not gonna enjoy intimacy when you're running from him in the opposite direction. So let's think about it this way. If you had a child in utter rebellion against you as parents and against the savior, they're just, they're just going crazy in a crazy, ungodly life. You would still love them as a parent. You'd, you'd be heartbroken because you love them. Oh, this is tearing me up because I love them. That's how you'd be feeling. But that child on the run against you and against the Savior is not experiencing any of that love. They've cut themselves off from it, though it's still there. And we see this really when Jesus taught about the prodigal son. Remember that? You have the son who went off to crazy living and the father loved that son. We know it because when the son came back, we have the father running to him, kissing him and embracing him. So that love was always there. But when the son was in the far country, crazy, not at all able to experience the love that the father had for him. And that's why it's so important to return to him. And maybe that's you today. You realize I have not been experiencing the love, the joy and the peace of God. 
I know by faith that he does love me, but I've, what, what have I done? I've, I've been running in all the wrong places. I've been missing out on this. Today, here's the move. Run back to him. Tell him, Lord, I've been, a, I've been foolish. Lord, I want you to make your home with me. Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So there's a command to obedience. There's joy available in obedience. There's also an example of obedience here. That's verse 31. Jesus is the example of obedience. But I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. Rise, let us go from here. So Jesus isn't telling you to do something that he hasn't modeled himself. He was obedient to the father. Philippians 2, 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus obeyed the father and we see that joy in the relationship between the father, son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus modeled it. And then this, see the power for obedience. The power for obedience is the spirit of God. These two truths really are linked together. The only way you and I can be obedient like we want to be is to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit in you who's given you that new desire to walk with Jesus that you didn't have before. And not just the desire, he's given you the ability to do it. Even in the fiercest of temptations, with the spirit of the living God inside of you, you can indeed turn away from temptation and turn to Jesus. Now the, the evil one will lie to you. No, I have you in this one and you can't break free because you failed a thousand times in this way before. But the reality is when you know, no, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit, that he's inspiring the desire for obedience and he's empowering it that I can walk away from every temptation if I just want to. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. In the spirit of God, who now indwells you believer, you have everything you need to overcome any temptation. You have everything you need to serve him. That's why Paul said, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So let's conclude this way with just a few questions. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Then obey that command to believe in him. Believe in him. Make sure that you've put your faith in Jesus as the savior. You believe in God, believe also in him, Jesus said, put your faith in him. And only Jesus can save you. He's the only one who lived a perfect life. He died on a cross for you, spilling his perfect blood to atone for your sins. He was raised from the dead. And he says, if you believe in him, you won't perish. You have everlasting life. Oh, believe in him. Then I'll ask you again, do you love Jesus? Then obey Jesus. You want to honor him. You want to enjoy him. Then, then obey, be close to him and do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, then finally, this application. Perhaps God's been calling some of you to do something and you've not obeyed him because you have felt inadequate. You felt like I couldn't do it. I'm too weak. I couldn't do that. So, so for somebody, it could be a call to international missions. You think me, a missionary, <laughs> I could never go to another country, leave things behind, sell things, store things. I could never do that. No, you, you can't. 
But the spirit of God in you, he's given you everything you need to obey what he's calling you to do. So if God's calling you, step out in faith and the power that he supplied in the spirit. Maybe it's not international. Maybe it is to be a part of some other ministry. God's calling you to ministry. Think I'm not adequate. None of us are adequate. But the blood of Jesus cleanses you, makes you adequate. The spirit of God in you enables you to do the things he calls you to do. And so maybe it's church planning he's calling you into. Maybe some other ministry. Don't be afraid to step forward knowing who is in you by the spirit of God.